1: You know, Ian, whenever someone asks me to get in their be real, I'm always like, what? Mm-hmm. What is that? What's happening? What are we doing? Why are we <laughs> doing this? Do we need to do this? I am not very social media savvy, so they have to give me a break.
0: Okay, you're talking about the app, right? That this this app that asks people to like post a photo from both the front and rear Cameras on their phone, and like a, you get a coordinated message in your friend group to take your b real photos. Yes, and
1: right? I've heard that everyone on the app like takes a photo at the same moment in time. At
0: the same time, yeah, that's how I understand. I'm it.
1: curious if that's like across time zones. I don't know. Very interesting.
0: Yeah, I think it is. I think it's like synchronized, synchronized photos of everything around you, and then they vanish again.
1: Normally, we're like sitting on my couch or eating lunch, like something super mundane.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's part of the idea is to show that. Most of the time, your life is ordinary.
1: Right. Welcome to How to Keep Time. I'm Becca Rashid, co host and producer of the show.
0: And I'm Ian Bogost, co host and contributing writer at The Atlantic. Becca, do you remember time capsules?
1: Yes, I didn't really live in that era, but yes, I've heard of them. Okay,
0: that's what I was wondering. (laughs) It used to be kind of a thing. You would uh, collect a bunch of. Photos and scraps of paper and letters and whatever you could find and bury it in the yard for folks a hundred years later to dig up and investigate. Right. We used to assemble these archives, these time capsules for the distant future, and some of them are like cosmic. You know, like in in, in 1977, America sent human memories, like almost time capsule like memories, into deep space on on Voyager, and now they're out there in the galaxy somewhere.
1: Mm, right.
0: But as a kid in the in the in the 80s. It felt like time capsules were everywhere. Like you'd trip over people burying time capsules in their really? schoolyards or churchyards. Yeah. Yeah, I remember I went to visit the site of the uh of Oppenheimer's atomic bomb test as a kid. And they were oh, they were wow. putting a time capsule in the ground. It was everywhere. Wow. And like you know the stuff that goes into it, um it's a different time horizon than your camera roll.
1: You yourself don't have Access to the records of your own life you're trying to save for someone else.
0: Yeah, it's not for you. It's for some future generation to see the ordinariness of your present life. and That's quite a bit different than taking smartphone photos that you'll probably never look at again. Or like posting ones on Be Real that that will then disappear a day later. Right. So it does kind of seem like apps these days, they, they really orient us toward the present. And uh, less so toward the the past and the and the future.
1: Interesting, you say that. I feel like I, I wonder if it really orients us towards the present, or if just a lot more of our present time is now used to document things we want to look mm. back on in the future. You know, Interesting. so yeah. And and how are we even distinguishing between present, past, and future time anymore? Like don't all those be real photos that you take begin to blur together and just become Mm -hmm. this, you know, unmanageable sort of trove of content? Mm -hmm. I I get the kind of longer-term projects that people do, like parents taking photos of children every day as they grow up to document their change over time. But all the stuff in between just feels like a culture around needing to capture our time in some way to measure it and and just kind of Mm -hmm. make sense of the movement of of time in our lives.
0: Yeah. I mean, there are so many, you know, apps these days to record and measure, like, just about everything. hmm You know, so your, the number of steps you took or stairs you climbed, uh, your weekly screen time report, the UPS packages you received, <laughs> uh, period tracker apps that measure women's bodily rhythms, mm-hmm. how much exercise you did yesterday or didn't do, all of that stuff. Right. It used to be weird right. to record stuff like that. Justin Hall it was sort of heralded as one of the first bloggers when he started publishing his personal diary on a website in 1994. It was strange. like mm. He was posting personal things, and people thought that was unusual, and they were maybe even uncomfortable mm-hmm. with it. Or uh, an, an early internet entrepreneur named Josh Harris uh, famously streamed his whole life, him and his girlfriend, in 2000, right after the turn of the century. And that was weird, too. You know, mm. it, was, it was strange and it felt like dirty in a, in a way you were seeing into someone else's life. Right, and it was also right. weird when the so-called quantified self movement arose a few years after that. What
1: exactly was that?
0: Right. So that, that was a name at the time for this, uh, like a new movement driven by, by technologists largely, you know, to record and track anything that you could record and track. The step counting and all that kind of stuff wow. started then too. And so all of that... Um, had to be invented and it, it it has only come to feel natural because it's been adopted which is notable that so many people were like okay yeah we'll do that
1: interesting and and that's clearly just a huge cultural shift right about what feels too personal to share
0: or even too personal to keep
1: right like i'm thinking about my <laughs> my first blog as like a middle schooler on tumblr mm, i had tumblr essentially just embarrassing garbage on there that I didn't have to worry about anyone seeing. It was really just a documentation of my favorite, you know, music, fashion trends. But now a lot of online content I see or or documentation in general feels a lot more curated in a
0: way. You know, Becca, in my generation, um, people did record stuff. Uh, People used to keep, you know, like diaries. Right. Um, But that was, you know, less filtered partly because it was so private. I mean, this Mm -hmm. was a private thing that people kept... Uh, for nobody, kind of, just for themselves. But then slowly over decades, we we moved that activity online. And that not only made it normal to share it, but also normal to try to hold on to all that stuff, to document and keep it in a different way. And like, Not everyone would have a diary back in the day. And now kind of everyone does, even if they don't call it that.
1: I've always wondered if this sort of compulsive documentation and the habits we have around writing down what happens at any moment in time is actually about the fear of losing time and, and our impulse mm. to you know, want to control it. I felt this kind of maybe
2: pathological anxiety that if I lost those memories, if I lost the memory of the emotional weather of the day, I would be losing some essential part of myself, this essential part of my life.
1: So Ian Sarah and Gussos kept a diary since she was about 14, documenting her daily life detail by detail.
2: I write in my bed, on my laptop, I write on the sofa. I was unable to stop ruminating on the smallest things Hmm. that happened to me Hmm. until I wrote them down. At which point I could then be free of this kind of obsessive, like, you know, thinking and rethinking.
1: Ian, Sarah is also the author of many nonfiction books, and she's a professor of creative writing at Antioch University. Her practice of writing everything down in this diary made me wonder how are all the ways that we play with time and yeah. the ways that we try to preserve it by documenting, hmm. how much is that really helping us hold on? And I know we, we want to keep time, but <laughs> can we? Can you describe the style of a typical entry in your diary?
2: In the beginning, in the very beginning, when I was in my teens, the entries were very emotionally overwrought.
1: Mm-hmm. It
2: really was just sort of your, like, you know, toxic waste dump of teenage feelings, which I think, <laughs> you know, was a fairly universal experience for teenage diarists. Yes. Um, over the years, I I began writing in present tense. I stopped using the pronoun I— I log the date, the year, month, and day. Um, So there are, you know, there are some formal habits that have become somewhat fixed over the years.
1: You know, a lot of diarists or people who journal to the extent that you do are sought out later in life and later in history for their reflections on a specific moment in history or a moment in time? Oh, no, nobody would care. Like, really, there's, <laughs> there's no historical
2: moment captured in my diary. My heart sinks when I think of the prospect of having to, like, represent the past right. to the people of the future, because, like, no, it's just going to be like, here's what I was thinking about, and this person I was obsessed with, and, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's all going to be really embarrassing if we're looking for historical import.
1: Can you explain a bit about how this process of recording every day changed when you became a mom or perhaps when you were pregnant with your son?
2: Yes. Soon after my son was born, I underwent a period of um, sleep loss. And because your um, your working memory is so impaired by sleep loss, I sort of lost the sense of linear time and the way that it had felt before. Once I had the ability to sort of think about abstractions again, to think about anything except, you know, keep the kid alive, keep, mm. keep the self alive, mm. I realized I don't need the diary. You know, it's neither necessary nor sufficient.
1: So Ian, you know, in our pursuit of keeping time and trying to figure that out, I mm-hmm. wonder how these gaps impact our memories. Like with Sarah, she wasn't able to document every single thing (laughs) she had planned to. When her son was young, she had to step away from her diary. And I think there are sometimes these gaps between the way we record things and how we want to remember them. Mm -hmm. You know, we might just snap a photo at lunch with friends, but we really want to remember how deep the conversation was during the meal. And I wonder if there's some shorthand way to practice making those kinds of memories stick
0: yeah totally becca i mean the the memories we keep are related to the way that we hold on to them Mm -hmm. if we want to learn how to keep time we need to know something about how memory works so that we can use it effectively
3: we are not designed to remember everything our memory is supposed to be selective right So we often kick ourselves for not being able to remember everything that we ever experienced. But I think that expectation is wrong.
0: Becca, I talked to Charan Ranganath, a professor of psychology and neuroscience at the University of California, Davis. Hmm. And Charan taught me that memories are not just records, like stored pages of a diary, pictures on a phone or whatever. Hmm. But the way that we interact with our memories also changes them and us. And I think we don't appreciate
3: both the opportunities that memory gives us for the future and the way it already does affect us without even necessarily knowing it.
0: How do we hold on to memories in our brains?
3: So memories themselves come about through connections between neurons that change when we experience something. Literally, there's a physical change that takes place in our brains after we have all of these experiences and our brains are constantly reshaping themselves over time mm-hmm. now some things that we experience are more significant than others and they release these chemicals called neuromodulators so it could be when we're under stress or it could be when we're surprised or it could be when we're experiencing desire or some other kind of motivation hmm. those are all things that release these chemicals okay. and those allow certain memories to persist at those moments and so by default, we will have predominantly better memory for these things that are more memorable, essentially. The, the things that we should remember, the things huh. that our brain biologically responds to in a way because it should be significant.
0: Does that make sense? Well, well, I, it does, but it makes me want to ask, what does it mean for something to be more memorable?
3: Yeah, so in terms of what the brain is trying to do, is it's trying to find something that is not consistent with what we would have already known before. That's a Hmm. big part of it, right? So in other words, if you have constraints on how much that you can remember, why remember the things that are already consistent with what you do? You just need to remember the things that are different in some way. So that distinctiveness is a big part of what makes something memorable. And then of course there's the other things like the, the ways in which an experience grabs onto some of our motivational systems in the brain, which also are associated with emotions. So things that make us scared or things that make us feel, like I said, desire or hunger. Um, but even curiosity too is another one that we found drives these changes in the brain.
0: Hmm. You know, we often, as individuals in the world, we want to like hold on to time. We don't want to let it go. We want to keep kind of closeness. With events that happened to us, whether they're important um, or whether they're kind of unimportant but delightful, like we want to like hold on to time almost. Like, is there a strategy for that? For like you kind know, of going, oh, okay, this thing is happening to me or just happened. I want to keep. I want to keep that close to me. How would I? How should I go about doing it?
3: That's something that I've been thinking a lot about. Um, is how to not only. You know, remember, but to curate my memories, taking advantage of the selectivity. And so, what I try to do is focus on the things that I want to remember and creating experiences that are going to be more memorable. So, sometimes that involves a change in our context just to put us in a new state of mind and give us something that's a little different than our routine. So, just to give you an example of the opposite of that during the pandemic when we were all locked down, everyone had lost that ability to change their context. Right. We're much. all stuck in we stuck in front of screens all day. And so I asked students in my class, do you feel like the days are passing by faster, slower, or the same while you're locked down? And about ninety-five percent of the people in the class said that they felt like the days were passing by more slowly. Mm -hmm. So then I said, do you feel like the weeks are passing by faster or more slowly? And about 80% of them said the weeks were actually passing by faster. So what I think it was is without that change in context, people felt like their days were just going on forever. But then when you reflect on longer timescales, you say to yourself, hey, what happened in the past week that was memorable and the fewer things that you can pull up? the more it feels like time was just passing by and is slipping through our fingers,
0: Given that most of us, when we think about memory, we think of it as being about the past. What does it mean to construe memory as an activity of the present or the future instead?
3: So I've spent much of my career studying what's called episodic memory, which is our ability to remember events from the past. Okay. But a lot of my recent work has been really about how we use information in episodic memory. And so what I mean by that is, let's say you're watching a movie or you're listening to a story. How do you use what we've learned in memory to be able to understand what's going on in those stories or movies? How do we predict it? Or if we're navigating, let's say uh, you're trying to figure out your way from uh, the hotel to this place where you have a conference, how do you use memory to actively figure out where you are and navigate to where you want to go. So in other words, moving from this perspective of memories being about the past to memory being about the present and the future.
1: So Ian, if Charn is saying that we do a better job at holding on to memories when we're experiencing something new or or novel, for me with my iPhone camera roll, it's like a low stakes, Kind of, you know, here's a, a beautiful flower I saw on my walk, or whatever, and yeah, I'm not I'm not at least consciously trying to preserve a memory or hold on to it.
0: Oh no, for sure. I mean, but but also think about how much easier it's become, Becca, to to do that with your yeah, phone. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's it's definitely a habit, you know, right. um, and I don't mean that in a negative way. It's just a thing that we do, and and it's a thing that people didn't used to do. Like you know, we recorded things. But we didn't do so obsessively because, in part, you couldn't. It was not possible. Right. Photographs were expensive and time-consuming to develop on film. And, like, writing out memories longhand in, in diaries is, is you know, irritating. And you get a hand cramp or whatever. And, um, but I'm also not sure, like, people are really reviewing how they change with time. Or really? I don't know like are they are are, are we just hoarding all of mm. these materials
1: I mean that's a good point I've seen interesting data from the University of Illinois on how people who looked at themselves more often mm. during oh video gosh, calls yeah. then reported worse moods you know people <laughs> on Zoom calls and so oh, maybe gosh. we simultaneously want a heightened sense of awareness and reject it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Being in your life and recording your life, they, they feel like they're at odds. And you have to move back and forth between them in a way. Totally. Yeah. I'm, I'm really upset, though, that you brought up the, the seeing yourself on video thing <laughs> because I've really been noticing this lately. Um, I use uh, Zoom and Microsoft Teams, both of those software packages for video calls. Okay. And Zoom has this filter. That like smooths out your skin what? and it makes me look great.
1: Are you sure that's true? Is but that I didn't, true?
0: It, I, I didn't realize it until I started using Teams, which doesn't have it, or at least I don't know how to turn it on if it does. <laughs> so like I'll go into to Microsoft Teams and I'm like, oh my, who is this who is this old guy looking at me?
1: I didn't know that that
0: Yeah, there's a button. I think it says enhance your appearance or something.
1: Oh wow! I thought that's just uh, what I looked like. Great. Now I'll, I'll no, get on. I, I, I'll get on l- Teams. L- and I'm humble sure that myself. you look that way, but I don't.
0: <laughs> I don't. I have to have my appearance enhanced.
1: Yeah, I mean that's that's just like a filter on work calls, and then I think about all the other things on social media that make you into a supermodel, and all these apps that show you what you'll look like 40 years into
0: the future. Yes, same kind of thing. Totally. Yeah.
1: And I've always stayed away from those apps because I feel like if I saw myself, you know, 50 years into the future. I would feel like a stranger to myself, right? And there's such interesting psychological research about the barriers to connecting with that future version of ourselves because many of us, you know, our identities change with time. We can't really emotionally connect to Mm. the needs of our future self, you know, which makes us probably worse long-term planners and saving for your future self is like, saving money for a stranger. Yeah. You know, you don't know that person. Yeah. You don't know their needs. And Sure,
0: right. I mean, you can, right? And, right, right. Becca, you know, I mean, behavioral scientists, they, like economists, whatever, they sometimes present this problem you're describing as like a simple one. Mm-hmm. Like just, oh, it's just a, a, a problem of reason right. and forward planning. Like just save for the future. Just, you know, be, uh, care for your health and go to the doctor. Um, but it's really hard. And it is actually a longstanding problem. A puzzle mm-hmm. in 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 human culture and our conception of self. Um, philosophers have a different name for this problem; they call it identity over time. Mm. And it's just not obvious that you or me or anything is the same thing that it once was when it moves in, into the into course, the future. Right. I guess what I'm saying is, it's not just a problem of planning or being foolish and kind of overcoming our foolhardiness through habits. Although it might be that too, but like a real legitimate philosophical question. Quandary is at work here. Right. And
1: given your larger philosophical point here, it does bring up a question for me. Like, what should I be holding on to and recording? And is it even helpful in understanding how I'm changing over time? Or is all this record keeping via social media and diary writing just affirming some evidence that we exist?
2: I think it is possible that social media might feel exactly the way that my diary feels to me, which is that until you post it, it doesn't feel like it's done yet. Or, or until, right. you know, until you post something, you don't exist. Or maybe in, until like X number of people see the post, it hasn't really finished happening yet. Right. And you know, for me, obviously, the, the audience thing is not the thing that scratches my itch, but simply just the expression of it in language is what makes me feel better.
1: Interesting. When you read back over your diary, does it feel like you're reading your own words or like you're looking into someone else's life? Oh, wow. That's interesting.
2: Well, if I go far back enough, occasionally I want to see if something happened the way that I remember. And so I'll go back enough years that I, I don't remember what it was like to write that year. And um, it doesn't feel like somebody else's life, you know, mm. it just feels, I don't know how old you are, but it, it, you know, it just, it just feels like, oh yeah, this was one of my previous iterations. This is, you know, me, like
1: 2.0, now I'm, you know, 9.4. Ian, if I'm ever in a place where I don't have Wi-Fi or something, mm. I'm just kind of scrolling back in my camera roll for for hours <laughs> and sure. it, it doesn't provoke any kind of intense emotion or kind of nostalgia of like, huh. oh, wow, this amazing trip I took three years ago. It's just kind of a photo in my phone, almost the same way I would access a memory in my mind and just like pull it up.
0: Yeah, it definitely feels like the tools for that kind of revisitation of memory are like really underdeveloped. Yeah. Um like sometimes I'll get a push notification from Facebook. I really don't use Facebook, but it's still on my phone, I mm-hmm. guess. And and it says like you have memories to look back on today.
1: Oh yeah.
0: <laughs> you know like what? Okay. I yeah. mean uh, my adult kids were in town for the holidays and at one at one point Facebook sent a push that said you have memories to look back on and showed me a picture of my son and I was like Facebook he's he's in the literal house right mm-hmm. now. Like like Let's Just back, back off, home. you know? <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Come on, like, I'm doing it. I'm doing the thing. Yeah. Um. So, but then if, you know, if it knew where he was, then that would be creepy. So, you know, who knows what to yeah. do? Uh, I mean, technology has definitely helped us keep more time through memories, but it's also done it in a haphazard way that maybe doesn't have the highest quality result.
1: I, I think Charon's advice about being selective about which memories we keep is, is so tough in this era when it's really all hard. the memories in our mind, also have some kind of physical record online to actually pull us, you know, back into that moment.
0: Right. It's all munged together for sure. It's like, you know, maybe somewhere in your house you have like a shoebox of of print photos, you know, somewhere and you just threw them all in. But now it's like everything that you've ever thought or seen or done is in one giant shoebox in your your phone. It's hard to know how to make sense of, of any of it. How do you know when you're doing the right thing, when you're keeping the right amount, when you've overdone it or when you've underdone it from the perspective of of a kind of healthy memory life?
3: Yeah, I guess what I'd say, so um, there are people, for instance, who have highly superior autobiographical memory. They're not necessarily happier than people who don't. They have these detailed recollections of you know, what they ate for lunch, right. let's say, nine months ago, but they don't benefit from that right so i think this is a very good question um where you have to ask yourself what's useful yeah first of all i think you're documenting too much if there's things that you document that you don't go back to interesting right there you realize that you're hoarding memories
0: that's amazing you don't
3: want to be a hoarder and so like that's your first indicator if i took a hundred photos of my trip and i never went back to them yeah. Maybe they took too many photos. Uh, now sometimes you don't know what's interesting until you look back. But I think the problem is, is that if you take too many photos, I can guarantee you, you'll never look back.
0: Huh. So, what's the? Where does the impulse come to to hoard memories uh, like that? To hold on to everything? To create, you know, a bunch of records or to keep a bunch of scraps or take a bunch of photographs? Is it about feeling like we're like? Is it a desire to be in control of time? And it's passage.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think we're all afraid of the idea that we will lose our memories because it's so embedded in our narratives of who we are. Yeah. And so there's an existential fear there. But also I'm mindful of the fact that I'm in the fourth quarter of life. And so I'm asking myself, what am I doing with my time right now? And if I look back and I say, boy, I've spent the last week just sitting in front of a screen and I have nothing memorable from those experiences, that's very frightening to me That because I'd like to have lived a life that's more memorable than that. So sometimes it's not about hoarding every moment as much as being able to value the experiences you've had. Because if you have you know, one experience that is valuable that you could draw upon later on from the past week. That's a whole lot better than mindlessly documenting everything you've ever done for the last week, right? And that's going to be more personally meaningful to you, I think, in terms of anchoring you in where you're going in your journey in life.
2: Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses.
0: of stuff, you know, like participation ribbons I got from the third grade busking competition, whatever it was. I don't know. I don't even know. You know. Um, Do you feel like
1: you're as connected to those items as she is? Like, does seeing, you know, the third grade soccer trophy or whatever make you nostalgic for that? Absolutely time?
0: not. Uh, and I've okay. always had this kind of weird feeling about all that scrapbook stuff. And you know, like, are those things important? Am I making a mistake? Mm. It actually makes me think of, the, there was this article I commissioned for The Atlantic a number of years ago that made the case for why you should go ahead and throw your children's, like, art away, like all the all the drawings and whatever oh, the kids make. Yeah, because, you know, if you have kids, I mean, they produce all this art all the time, and it all feels very tender and important in the moment, but then it piles up. And it's not, <laughs> it's not very good anyway. No, it's children's <laughs> art. And so, like, you know, what should you do with it?
1: my mom would be so upset to hear that. She just found some old <laughs> art of mine that I made in middle school and, like, re-laminated it at Staples. This is, like, material from 20 years ago. And that's, like, one poster from my childhood that helps her, <laughs> you know, remember who I was as a 12-year-old. But yeah. if she had an iPhone, God knows what she would do.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I totally get it. I mean, um, Mary Townsend, who's the philosopher who wrote this Throw Your Kids art piece I mentioned, mm. um, Like what she recommended is, well, keep a few, you know, be selective, Hmm. keep a few because saving something that you'll never look at again, kind of in the way that Charan is explaining, um, if you keep all of it, that that actually will erode those memories more than it will amplify
1: them. I I wonder if part of the, the ease and kind of joy of digital memories is that they are kind of immaterial and they don't have to take up physical space in your house. No, for sure. But I wonder if they play less of a role in our memory for those same reasons. I, I don't know with that poster my mom kept looking at it, holding it. I not only have the m- memory of that thing I made, but who I, I was at the time. I can kind of remember like painting on that poster, mm-hmm. why I chose the colors I did. And, and just the general context of my life in that period of time is stored better in a way in that physical copy.
0: I mean, it it makes sense. But then at the same time, now that your smartphone is such a major part of your life, an extension of yourself really, when you create those memories, you may be creating them in concert with that device. right. And so that could make the digital things seem you know just as real, if not more real and striking right than the physical ones in the way you're just describing.
1: Do you think it preserves the the context of when you kind of captured that yeah. memory in the same way?
0: That's it. I think th- I think that it does. I think that it does. You know, the, we, we should be careful not to think of, of the these, these digitally created contexts as somehow lesser than taking a, what, like a film mm. photo or, you know, jotting something down on paper. Those were technologies, too, and we had a different and maybe similar relationship to the apparatus as something that was taking part in the construction of the memory then, too. So, Charan, I wonder if you can tell me, like, how does the contextual nature of memory impact our general experience uh, uh, of the world. And I'm especially interested in our experience of the passage of time.
3: Context is central. And this is something that we've studied a lot in my lab is the idea that context comes in as part of the memory itself. Hmm. And so I don't know if you've had this experience of hearing a song on the radio and just all of a sudden a memory that you didn't think was there popped into your head. Uh or times where, for me, it's like if I travel to India, which I don't do very frequently, but when I have, I immediately get all of these memories of seeing my relatives in India that I wouldn't necessarily be able to access when I'm here. Just the sights, the smells, the sounds are really enough to drive those experiences of remembering. And so context is super powerful, both in terms of determining what we remember and also determining the things that we can't access.
0: That's interesting. So are, are you suggesting that, you know, if there's if I have a memory that I want to hold on to or I want to amplify, that kind of changing the context in which I remember it is one tool to do so?
3: Absolutely, and that doesn't just have to be a change in place, but it can also be a state of mind. You know, I think our brains naturally want to generate predictions about how things are supposed to be and what that means is it reduces the load of what we have to learn and remember. And if you want to have something though that's memorable and distinctive, you have to do the opposite. You have to ask yourself what's different about this experience that I can hold on to Mm. later. And you could take advantage of that too by documenting what's different. Mm. So when I go on holidays, I like to take pictures of things that are very unusual that will bring me back to the moment. And sometimes those aren't actual landmarks, but they could be even things like moments when we're out eating at a restaurant or something, and I catch my daughter laughing while she's got a drink in her hand or something. And those kinds of moments are anchors that allow me to go back and not just see the picture, but re-experience the event.
0: Humans have had technologies of documentation for a a long time, uh, whether those are photographs or or paintings, or um, paper records, books. How have those changes in the way that we do record keeping as a human culture, what impact have they had on our relationship with with time, in, in our, or our sort of cognitive relationship with time?
3: I can't give a precise scientific answer to that question, but what I can say is, based on what we know, that our memories are intertwined with our social world, right? And hmm. so a lot of, Uh, the documentation that you're talking about is not just for the purpose of recording, but communicating. Hmm. And that act of communicating our experiences actually changes how we remember. There's great research showing that parents, for instance, that engage with children about memory and meaningfully talk to them about their interpretation of their past. Actually, children are much less likely to have mental illness later on. So this ability to engage with our past actually informs our narratives of our life and they inform our sense of who we are. If we take that into the realm of time, the more of a rich life narrative we can construct, the more we feel that time was well spent. And I think even the painful experiences in our life, if we engage in ways of documenting, like with art, for instance, Or with journaling, the more we can engage with even those painful memories and approach it from a different perspective, not one of staying stuck in the past, but rather how can I take that past and use it as a learning experience or as a way of understanding the world differently and, you know, essentially growing from it. I think that will give you not just a sense that you had that time, but that you used that time well.
1: You know, Ian, I think in making this podcast with you, I've realized that my time has never really been separate from me, and mm-hmm. I viewed it as separate from me <laughs> for most of my life. Yeah,
0: sure. I mean, it can, it can feel like you're swimming in time, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Or maybe against time. But I, I guess it's more like without the current, you just don't even exist.
1: Right. And and now I'm at least trying to move with the current in a different way, I guess, without constantly thinking about another way I should have used my time or, you know, what else I could have been doing. And that has brought me some sense of relief.
0: Sure. I also came into this podcast feeling just ill at ease about time. Like, Mm-hmm. Where did it all go and, and, and how can I tame it moving forward? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I understood that like memory and, and personal records and stuff like that, that seemed to be related to time, you know, mm-hmm. like of course, of course they are. But both uh, Sarah and Tarn have helped me understand how our drive to document things, whether, you know, whether it's with diaries or photos or just the memories in your head, those are like kind of symptoms of that desire to hold on to our experience mm-hmm. of time, you know, to, to keep time.
1: Right. And, you know, like I was saying, I feel like I have a complicated relationship with what exactly to hold on to. Yeah. I want to collect as much of the emotional experience as possible. And I don't know if that's a reasonable expectation to be able to hold on to the joy of every moment exactly as it happened the first time. But I think the drive to keep everything you know, whether on mm-hmm. social media or in shoeboxes or camera rolls or whatever, convinces us that we can really hold on to that moment exactly yeah. as it happened.
0: Like I keep coming back to Charan's use of the word "hoarding" to describe this kind of behavior. Mm-hmm. Like it, it really cuts to the chase, doesn't it? Yeah. We live in this like "pics or it didn't happen" world now. <laughs> right. And it makes me feel like the time I spend on whatever I'm doing has been turned into almost like an evidentiary. Process, like, unless I can mm. prove to you that I really ate this meal or visited this place, like, I didn't I didn't really do it. Which is really, like, it's pretty perverse when you think about it, you know?
1: But those choices are still up to you. Yeah. What we do with all those images in the cloud. It's an emotional choice, right. I think. Absolutely. Yeah. I assume, you know, we want to hold on to the best memories and get rid of all the bad times in our minds and probably in our camera (laughs) rolls as well. (laughs) So just trying to keep everything and hold on to all of it and just sort of document incessantly won't stop the current of time. Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, Becca, we have all these tools that are almost making memories for us before we're ready. Mm -hmm. And we're forgetting that the selectivity of memory is what we still have agency over. You know, Mm -hmm. you can choose what to hold on to.
1: You can choose, yeah. What to keep. I'm Becca Rashid.
0: And I'm Ian Bogost.
1: Thanks for joining us this season.
0: Our editors are Claudina Bade and Jocelyn Frank. Fact checked by Anna Alvarado.
1: Our engineer is Rob Smirciak. Rob also composed some of our music. The executive producer of audio is Claudina Bade, and the managing editor of audio is Andrea Valdez.
0: If you liked what you heard this season, Please share this podcast with a friend, post a link on social media, or leave a review. It really helps.
1: How To will be back with a new season later this year.